We all have a certain level of vulnerability equals disability. And could we get to the place of where we talk about it on a spectrum? So that we normalize the fact that we all need help somewhere um, in this human condition. Welcome to the RehabCast, the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation and the Archives of PM&R. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. As I reflect on Dr. Van Hoos's insightful remarks about the inherent vulnerability within the human condition and our universal need for support, I find a profound link to our first interviewee, Dr. Anjali Forberpratt. Her plenary discussion on disability research not only resonates with these ideas, but also explores the critical role of representation in research. This is especially important in recognizing and addressing the vulnerabilities present in the communities we serve as rehabilitation professionals. Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt, please introduce yourself and tell us who you are. Yeah, my name is Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt and I am the director of NIDLER, the National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research within the federal government. Awesome. We're just going to kind of jump in here, but uh, introduce your role on the in the conference here. Uh, you were one of our excellent plenary speakers that has already gone, and I've had the fortunate benefit of seeing your talk already, which was great. Help us understand uh, how you became involved with the projects of disability, inclusivity, representation, and rehab research, and that role at Nidler. Absolutely. Well, you know, the the topic of disability inclusivity and representation and rehabilitation research is something that has been a longstanding passion of mine just as a person living with a disability and someone that really um, studies as well as takes pride in extending the importance of disability representation in all things that we do, but especially in the world of research. And um, I'm really fortunate that now in my role as director at Nidler that you know, the federal government is is ripe and and hungry for having these conversations of how we can do a better job at at improving inclusivity and and increasing the representation of people with disabilities in our scientific workforce and as the generators of science and research. And kind of unbox for people who are interested in this similar field, how did that path to this role kind of, what were the steps you took to get up to this point? So uh, being completely honest, a lot of it has been being in the right place at the right time and being healthy and curious about these about these particular topics. And so by that, I mean, you know, for myself growing up with a disability, I was experiencing the lack of representation and really what that meant for my own development. And that really spurred me as I went through my own graduate training to study this thing called disability identity development and to better understand how people with disabilities develop an identity um, and what that looks like over time. And, and I was asking questions like, are there differences if you acquire a disability versus grow up with a disability? Are there differences based on the type of disability that you may have? And that healthy curiosity, as I describe it, um, really laid the framework and, and the foundation for me to, uh, you know, have this be a, a body of research that, that I studied for about a, a decade um, and, and so forth before this role. Um, 
And, you know, quite honestly, I wasn't planning to leave academia, um, but I was asked to serve in the Biden-Harris administration as the director of NIDLER. And for me, it was really an incredible opportunity to make an impact in a different way to be able to shape our federal research agenda on disability. Kind of talking about that current state, how would you describe that current state of disability inclusion and representation and rehab research like right now or under your purview? Yeah, so I would say we're in a we're at an interesting standpoint. In at a in a time where people are willing to engage on this topic. So there's several things that have happened and, and that have really put this topic on the forefront of many people's minds. So for example, within several executive orders on equity that President Biden signed, disability is named as one of the under underserved popu- populations and communities that, that we should be intentionally considering. We also very quite recently, the National Institutes on Health has um, has determined that disability is in fact a, a, a health disparities population, which affects uh, research projects that are funded through NIH, which Nidler is not a part of NIH. But but what that does is it signals the importance of this, this type of conversation of inclusivity and in research and representation and intentional focus on studying these disparities in really meaningful ways. And I believe that that both of these elements have really helped to put this topic on the forefront of people's minds. Now, that said, we still have a long way to go. So when we look at the available data, which it's also hard to find available data on, you know, disability disclosure in, in, um, in the, the scientific workforce. But unfortunately, what we see is that we haven't moved the needle a whole lot, even in the past decade. And so when we look at the, at the scientific workforce, people with disabilities only represent about 3% of that workforce. And just for people listening that are not as familiar with, you know, what that community looks like in the U.S. in general, how big of a disparity is that? There are 67 million Americans who self-identify as having a disability. And so when we think about that number, you know, 67 million, and then what that actually is translating to in terms of those that are that are active members within the, within the scientific workforce, it there, there's a huge discrepancy. And I think that we have to think of it also of, you know, how are we how are we getting individuals who are qualified in the door to pursue higher education as step number one? So I'm talking, you know, very basic like bachelor's degrees and, and so forth. But then how many of that of that group are persisting into graduate school, are persisting into postdoctoral training, or and then becoming principal investigators that are leading these types of research projects that we're talking about? And unfortunately, when we do look at the available data that, that we have on that, as you progress through those advanced degrees and so forth, that number of people with disabilities drastically decreases. So there's been quite a lot of efforts of, of really trying to, to tackle getting people with disabilities enrolled initially in higher education. And, and, and part of that push has been because of the longstanding disparities that individuals with disabilities face in terms of employment outcomes. So, they're, so making sure that, that people actually are qualified for various jobs. 
But what we're seeing, and specifically to the scientific workforce, is that as you progress in those degrees, that we're not doing a really good job of of keeping people with disabilities engaged and or supporting them to advance in whether that's in their degrees or in their leadership roles within the rehabilitation research field. Yeah, it's not just the pipeline. It's making sure you have the infrastructure to keep the flow moving. Exactly. Progressing and advancing. From your perspective, what are... Uh, some of the reasons to support and sponsor disability inclusivity and representation in rehab research that, you know, feel free to state the obvious and then feel free to move past that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like we we have an obligation to those 67 million Americans to support this this better inclusivity and representation in research because Otherwise, we run the risk of not meeting the needs of those 67 million Americans, right? And so part of it, it's, it's you know, we need to, as people with disabilities, we need to be feel seen by the research that's being conducted. We need to be, be playing integral roles on research teams to help to better craft the research questions that are being asked, to better shape the protocols and better shape the interventions that are being designed, the products that are being designed, all of these different elements because you don't know what you don't know. And and with in the case of disability, it is far, far, far easier to design with intentionality so that disability is not an afterthought. And you can make tweaks to research protocols if you have that input throughout the entire process in that design phase, in that early conceptualization, through the data collection, and of course, then, you know, the, the, the analysis and then disseminating the results. And it brings this level of authenticity and relevancy to the community. And that's that's really at the heart of, of why I believe this is extremely important. One of those moments that I think highlights this for me was from your talk was the anecdote of the uh, vision impaired researcher that couldn't even click the submit button on their IRV because it wasn't, I'm going to use the term, coded in a way mm-hmm. that her screen reader could even detect where that button was. And Correct. Like there's just so many inherent, easy to fix pitfalls that Like if you include those individuals from the get-go, you would completely avoid. Absolutely. Yep. One of the organizations that, you know, you are uh, in lead of, and we've talked about a little bit, I think it would be worth talking more about. And so when we say NIDLER, uh, kind of unbox and tell us more about what that organization is, what their aims are, and just, I don't know, expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. So Nidler, we have been around since 1978 as part of the federal government, and we exist because of specific provision in the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So came came a little bit later in terms of some amendments, and so 1978 is is when Nidler was established. And you know, the main purpose and vision and, and so forth of Nidler is really around the generation of new knowledge and, um, and, and really the belief that people with disabilities have the right to live active and productive lives in every aspect of society and that we need research that shows those, long, those long-term outcomes and benefits and so forth. And so that's really at the heart of, of the type of work that, that Nidler funds. And so we fund work across three main domains 
domains or areas, so health and function, which is certainly of particular relevance to the ACRM community, um, employment and community living and participation. And these are those domains are really just kind of buckets or ways in which we are able to sort of better categorize the types of the types of funding proposals that we receive. But we also certainly know that there's many of many grants and many of the work that we that we do fund touches upon one or more or even all of those domains. But those have been really helpful over the years to help us uh, keep things straight. And when you think about funding, um, is there a way to describe the number of projects that are currently active or the amount of funding that you're able to um, support rehab-based research, kind of what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. So we have a small but mighty budget. So we have a, a, a budget that is directed to us directly from Congress of $119 million, um, which can sound like a lot, but I want to unpack that a little bit for listeners to better understand. So of that $119 million, um, only about 20% of that is available to us for new starts or new grants in a given year. And that's because we at Nidler, we fund a lot of multi multi-year grants. So we have three-year grants, we have five-year grants. And part of that is because we know that high-quality rigorous research takes time to do. And if we try to mush that into, you know, a one-year project, you're you're not going to get the, the, the same impact and the same visibility and the same reach of, of that work. So that means that 80% of that $119 million is what we call continuations. And, and that's us making that commitment to those multi-year projects of like, yeah, you you know, we're not going to pull that funding away, but the, the, it's the it's that commitment of, of funds that are already, you know, set aside for those those continuations. Um, the other piece that I think is is also really important for folks to, to, you know, understand in terms of in terms of that funding landscape is that outside community members and the rehabilitation field, it's it's the outside voice that leads to changes in terms of of increased dollars. And this is true across the entire federal government. Um, and it really, like we have seen successes of outside advocacy that can and does sometimes lead to increases. So very recently, it was because of outside advocacy that led to an increase specifically in Nidler's spinal cord injury model systems. And so again, that was a huge thanks to the rehabilitation community and the community of advocates that led to that increase. That's great. For people who weren't able to attend your talk, uh, can you share some of the anecdotes and good things that have happened to kind of further emphasize the point that uh, disability, inclusivity, and representation is really needed to make that equitable space? Yeah, you know, I think that for me, when I think about the, the work that we're doing within Nidler and what we hear from the community, it's about people with disabilities wanting to feel like they're seen and heard and represented in the work that's that's being carried out. And so, you know, this includes paying attention to the stock images, for example, that we use when we're doing both study recruitment as well as disseminating those findings and really paying attention to, you know, are we using accurate disability representations in the images that we're using? Are we using images that showcase a variety of disabilities if if your study, in fact, includes individuals with a variety of disabilities, understood if you're, you know, focused on one specific subpopulation. But we have to have those conversations up front in order to think about 
what those impacts and so forth are on the, on the community. Because when a community member sees themselves being represented, they're going to be more likely to volunteer to participate in your research study. They're going to be more likely to hopefully, this is always the ideal, to use the findings and those results to impact his or her their life, right? And so it's it's it, it becomes sort of that full circle and, and win-win from, from that perspective. Another example as a funder that we're that we're really trying to do as uh, in, in in ways to encourage that intentionality is having this be requirements in in Nidler's funding application. So for example, in the application, which is a scored criteria, applicants have to describe how they are including the input from people with disabilities throughout the process of, of the work that's being proposed. Um, within our advanced rehabilitation research and training mechanism, so this is a, um, a postdoctoral fellowship training, um, training grant mechanism, we require in that grant submission that individuals describe how are you going to actively recruit postdoctoral trainees with disabilities as part of as part of um, the, 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 the proposal. And so with intentionality, we really are trying to chip away at those dismal statistics of that scientific workforce because for us at Nidler, yes, absolutely a large part of what we do is on you know the research and development itself. But a second large piece is this capacity building and then, of course, knowledge translation as well. So for us, we view all three of those things as fundamentally important as we are helping to lead this rehabilitation research field. Yeah, I, I really like the ideas just like this one that try to bake the change into the process. And the better a system does that, it's just so much more likely that it will have a more lasting impact. Um, so kudos to you and your team for pulling all those pieces together. Um, when you think about an ideal state of how you would like things to continue to develop, obviously you won't be in this role forever, so this is kind of that legacy question. What's going to be that next steps or where you'd like things to go? Yeah, you know, I dream of a world where, you know, disability is no longer an afterthought and where it just is fully baked into to everyone's mindset, especially those who are rehabilitation researchers, of of having this intentionality and inclusivity in everything that we do. Another really prime example of this is the fact that many individuals who may identify, say, for example, within the spinal cord injury population, they may have other existing disabilities as well, like mental health disabilities. They may also be deaf. They may also have a, you know, a, a blindness or low vision. And, and we, f we run the risk of alienating or inadvertently excluding individuals from our studies without thinking more broadly and more inclusively um, of those different needs, you know, in, 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 in and when we're designing studies and on our own research teams as well. And so again, it's a both and, it's both the participants in our studies as well as who is actually on our team carrying out the work. Oh, very well said, very well said. Um, before we jump into the lightning round questions, do you have any questions for me? I don't think so. I don't think so, okay. <laughs> Making my job very easy. <laughs> All right. Tell me about a piece of good advice you've received. 
A piece of really good advice that I have received is to always pause and say your thank yous. That's that's good. That's really good. Um, I think we could all do that a little bit more. Um, talk to me about something that I must do if I came to the area or the community that you live in. Oh my goodness, that's a that's a tough one because I moved to Washington D.C. in the middle of a pandemic, and so <laughs> I myself am still exploring and learning more of the of the Washington D.C. area. But I have to say that one of my favorite favorite things to do is to explore the local trails. So I particularly really love Rock Creek Park, and um, there's all sorts of just paved paths and beautiful nature and scenery. And I have a service dog named Colton, and so we get to go out and enjoy nature and. For me, it's really a wonderful chance to really just disconnect from the, you know, hustle and bustle of our everyday lives and of the the great work that we are doing at Nidler, but also the very busy work that we're doing. So nature is something that really helps to ground me and reconnect me to to the world. I like that. I like. I, I'm a bike commuter, so I really it feels like it connects me to the community, to the change of season a whole lot more. The more I can get out and get into nature, so that's great. Tell me, how do you in particular thank people that have been helpful? Yeah, so I have to say I'm a little bit old school and I write handwritten cards. That's kind of my favorite thing to do. Those are, uh, those are great. And I feel like people keep them longer than we ever think that they will when we do stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. And I'll add one other piece to that, which is uh, I travel quite a bit for, the, for this job, whether that's coming to conferences mm-hmm. or going to, to visit grantees at universities and, and other, other talks and things like that. And so I just I always keep a few blank thank you cards in um, like a, a, an envelope sleeve that I'd usually keep my travel documents and things like that. And so then I always have them handy so that then, you know, as I'm sitting on the airplane, I can just, you know, quickly jot them down. Excellent. What has been your favorite age to be a rehab professional so far? So I have a fun answer to this one, which is because I acquired my disability when I was a baby. So I was only four and a half months old. For me, I have always been living and breathing this this element of educating others about disability. So one of my favorite ages was actually when I was age seven and was asked by my big brother to go and be his presentation in the big old fifth grade and to educate others about life with a disability, to show my wheelchair, my leg braces, my racing wheelchair, and to educate others. And so I have to say that as a seven-year-old, I earned my big brother an A on that project. Um, but it really, it really gave me the the energy and the excitement to be willing and confident to talk about my disability and 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 to earn him that A. So <laughs> that's wonderful. Start start young. Yep. <laughs> um, what big ideas have you changed your mind on in the last few years? Hmm. You know, I think for me, one big piece that that. Um, I don't know that I've necessarily changed my mind on, but I have a deeper appreciation for is the importance of having advocates and allies and all of that in in all different sectors. And so for me, this is my first time being in federal government and, and in government in general. And for me, it's really been an eye-opening experience of how much we need people on the outside who are involved with professional organizations and universities and medical centers and disability-based organizations, just as much as we need people inside government working behind more more or less sometimes closed 
doors um, on policies and things like that. And, and But we really do truly need both in order to move any needle forward. It makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for being at the ACRM and helping celebrate our 100th conference. Um, any other closing remarks, remarks or thoughts that you have? No, I think the last thing that I would say is just something that I that I reiterated in my talk, which is we need the entire rehabilitation community in order to really to to make our world more inclusive and and to increase our disability representation and it takes all of us in order to to really make that difference and so i hope that our our listeners here will will join us on this journey thank you dr forber pratt's insights really opened my eyes to the importance of inclusivity in research now shifting gears, let's explore another facet of rehabilitation with Dr. Mark Ashley's plenary on caring for patients with brain injury. This is a disease that needs a cure. And we should be looking for that. And we should be talking about that. And we should be holding ourselves accountable to that. Thanks so much for joining me today on the RehabCast. Please tell us more about yourself. My name is Dr. Mark Ashley. I am the CEO and founder of the Center for NeuroSkills, which provides post-acute uh, rehabilitation for people with acquired brain injury. Uh, I've served on a number of committees and boards, uh, including uh, the Brain Injury Association of America, the Brain Injury Association of California, uh, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine in various capacities. Uh, I think uh, professional advocacy is an important component of our responsibility, and I've tried to, to meet that responsibility in those ways. That's awesome. That's a lot of different uh, roles in different spots across the country. This year, at the 100th celebration for the ACRM conference, you gave one of the plenary talks. Can you give us kind of the elevator pitch of what that talk was and what you talked about today? Sure. So uh, I was asked to review the history, uh, the efficacy, and the potential of post-acute uh, brain injury rehabilitation. Uh, and uh, in this instance, post-acute uh, refers to after inpatient rehabilitation facility discharge. Uh, so in the CMS world, inpatient rehabilitation facility care would be considered post-acute. We're post post-acute. PPAC. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, having just come from your talk, I thought it did an excellent job in kind of reviewing those topics. I'm curious for the people listening to this podcast, um, kind of set the stage a little bit. Tell us about the, the current or the trend in the demographics for patients who are becoming hospitalized with brain injury in the United States. So the numbers have remained fairly static, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 220,000 or so uh, injuries resulting in hospitalization uh, from traumatic brain injury on an annual basis. Uh, these numbers uh, don't include uh, individuals who are seen in primary care clinics after an injury or in emergency departments after an injury, urgent care settings. Uh, so we think these numbers are an underrepresentation of the incidence uh, of uh, uh, traumatic brain injury in particular. Uh, when we think about this population, we see that there is growth 
in the incidence in individuals over the age of 75. And this is probably more a matter of identi better identification uh, when an individual uh, of 75 years or older shows up in an emergency department and is confused uh, uh, or disoriented. Um, <clears throat> not being attributed to their age, rather being attributed to a known fall, for example. Uh, we see that the uh, deaths uh, arising from traumatic brain injury have remained relatively static as well in the neighborhood of 600, excuse me, 6,000 uh, people uh, per year. Uh, and so when we think about the level of treatment or the kind of care these people receive, uh, emergency department care, ICU, uh, participation in a med surge floor following discharge from an ICU are fairly common uh, for those hospitalized. Uh, Transfer to an inpatient rehabilitation facility setting versus a skilled nursing facility setting is a bit more variable, uh, and studies have shown that there's differences by virtue of race, by virtue of age, and by virtue of uh, health care coverage. Uh, the individuals who do arrive at an inpatient rehabilitation facility and are subsequently discharged the vast majority of those individuals will receive some outpatient uh, treatment or none at all, depending again upon the same uh, factors I just mentioned. Uh, when we look at this population broadly, uh, the individuals who sustain the moderate to severe injuries uh, would be somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the total number of individuals uh, sustaining these injuries who are hospitalized. And it's those individuals who will present with the more significant and obvious disabilities that are either physical disability or cognitive disability, uh, communicative disabilities, and so on. There may also be neurobehavioral disorders uh, that we'll see in the same group of people. Individuals who sustain mild traumatic brain injury, or concussion as is called by many lay persons, these individuals, their, their problems may go unheralded. The majority of those people will recover, and we can put recover in air quotes. Their symptoms will resolve within usually a 90-day period of time. There are different definitions out there, but one is that individuals whose symptoms persist beyond that time frame uh, can be referred to as uh, post-concussion syndrome. Uh, and uh, we're, we're beginning to understand better that these injuries that go by, unfortunately, a, a misnomer of mild traumatic brain injury uh, can actually have life-altering uh, consequences in their symptomatology. When we look at the diseases associated with traumatic brain injury. It's quite a list. It's a very, very lengthy uh, list. And it involves multiple systems. Um, we're beginning to understand why uh, it involves so many systems, apart from the fact that this is a, a traumatic injury that can affect other parts of the body. We do see that when there's neurologic alteration, uh, we have other system involvement minus in, in those individuals who don't have polytrauma. The idea that brain injury 
is an event has evolved into brain injury as a disease. Yeah, you, you made that point really well and even talked about the different uh, literature-based uh, touchstones that kind of set that moment in time, which I thought was an excellent part of your talk. Oh, thank you. When you think about uh, this population of traumatic brain injury patients, how would you kind of describe how post, post-acute care or post-acute care fits into the model of the greater system? When you think about the course of uh, recovery from ICU uh, on, we're first concerned about saving life. Then we become concerned with stabilizing uh, a variety of medical conditions and watching them improve and ensuring that there's no uh, avoidable complications and treating the complications that arise that are, are not avoidable, making sure that we don't contribute to the sequelae of the injury by inappropriate care or inappropriate tactics. A great example is how the field has moved away from hyperventilation, for example. We came to realize that hyperventilation was overutilized and was actually causing more injury uh, uh, inadvertently. So when the patient arrives now uh, at the inpatient rehabilitation facility level, uh, the length of stay in the acute medical side has gone from uh, over 30 days now down to somewhere in the 20-day or so neighborhood. And the length of stay at the inpatient rehabilitation facility uh, level has gone from some 55 days down to, unfortunately, today, somewhere between 10 and 14 days. So we've shortened up the amount of time that these individuals are in hospital settings. There's uh, good that comes from that in that we avoid uh, hospital-based complications. But the bad about this is that that may be the only rehabilitation that this individual will receive. The, the challenge that exists today is uh, our prioritization. And healthcare's prioritization today is less about quality and accurate care uh, than it is about the cost. Uh, and unfortunately, when you focus on one of those, the other is likely to suffer. The cost of healthcare is what gets the headlines. And this is where the focus on length of stay uh, has moved us. Because of these very shortened lengths of stay, we now see these patients coming out. Uh, unfortunately, the euphemism is sicker and quicker. They have many more problems than uh, perhaps they should have. Many areas that have been undiagnosed, uh, unrecognized, and untreated, and uh, many areas that have been diagnosed but have been under-treated because of the time constraints allowed. So the brain responds to stimulation. Uh, our programming for the brain is, is what we do environmentally uh, with the patient, the exposure and stimulation that the patient receives. And depending upon how you program that, uh, it will impact how the brain is going to recover or whether the brain is going to recover. 
it continues to learn. It's just what is it going to learn? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and how is it going to learn? Post-acute world uh, then focuses on providing additional dosing of treatment. Uh, and my focus uh, is in particular on dosing. If you use the example of penicillin for treatment of an infection, we know that we give a certain amount of penicillin, we give it a certain number of times a day, and we give it for a certain number of days. And we know this because we've studied uh, large groups and we can tell what the do we've learned what the dosage needs to be uh, of this particular agent. And we know the frequency necessary per day because we know the half-life of the drug. Uh, and we know the number of days we need to treat because that's the period of time at which 95% or more of individuals' infections resolve. Mm -hmm. So how do we define, how do we define rather the same sorts of uh, constraints for what we do with physical therapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy or cognitive rehabilitation as, as a few examples? What's the right chemical? What's the right substrate? What's the right substance to use? So are the therapists using the right tactics and techniques, or are they not? How frequently are they doing this? Are they doing this once a day, twice a week, once a month? Uh, for how long? And uh, how many days, for how long will they do this? So what I would submit is that uh, if we go to the extreme, which would be outpatient treatment where the individual's receiving uh, a couple of hours of therapy uh, a couple of days a week, I would submit that that's underdosing and likely not effective. Uh, on the contrary, if you think about immersion-based learning, you want the brain to pick up a second language. We know that if we put you in an immersion setting where all you can do is speak that language and all that's going to be spoken to you is that language, you're going to learn the language far more quickly and far more uh, efficiently uh, and completely. Why do we think that the brain learns differently after a brain injury for recovery of skills it already had? It probably does learn differently, but it does learn. And so uh, we know that when we intervene intensively very early after an injury, we can cause additional damage to the brain. But when we get past a particular period of time, uh, and we don't really have a definition of what that is, but we can think in a matter of weeks, then how do we apply this intensity of treatment? this higher level of dosing. We do have evidence that more intensive uh, therapies bring about better change, faster change, more complete recovery, better functional recovery. We also have evidence that you need a longer period of time to achieve those same kinds of improvements. So we have to decide societally what we're going to do with this very unfortunate group of people 
who sustain these life-altering catastrophic injuries? Are we going to continue to relegate them to the back rooms of their families' homes uh, with no meaningful engagement in life, having lost much of their future potential as they had envisioned it prior to their injury, and complicating their whole family environments uh, and the family aspirations and capabilities, wishes, hopes, and dreams? Or are we going to give them the proper treatment to address their conditions? As I said in, the, in my uh, lecture, we would not ever accept treating a patient with cancer halfway or a patient with a cardiac arrest halfway or a patient with ulcers or a gastrointestinal uh, disorder halfway. We talk about cures. Um, thinking about talking about curing brain injury will raise many eyebrows. What I would submit is we should raise those eyebrows. This is a disease that needs a cure. And we should be looking for that. And we should be talking about that. And we should be holding ourselves accountable to that. A cure can also mean treatment. So uh, while we can't treat forever and uh, returning the individual to their, their normal is unlikely to occur, we're stopping far short of that as a treatment aspiration. Uh, and we should go further. We should have the funding to go further. My point in, the, in my lecture was we don't ask our health plans to take that responsibility. You look at the rehabilitation benefit in most health plans, it's actually designed for orthopedic injury and orthopedic recovery woefully inadequate for a neurologic uh, condition. Makes sense. And if you, um, one of the other presenters and people I've talked with today had the mantra that uh, payment is really what facilitates practice and all the evidence and everything helps, but really the payment is what opens up the doors. And so if you had a magic wand to make post-acute brain injury care what it could be, what would be the lever or the thing that you would wave it at to try and fix that system? This is a wonderful question. I think we have to be careful not to paint the health insurance uh, industry as the bad guy. That would be inappropriate. That industry has evolved its product in response to what its customers have purchased. And affordability is a, an, an important component. We have a model that uh, actually worked really well in the state of Michigan in its no-fault uh, approach to uh, automobile injuries. And in the state, there was a slight premium paid or in addition, or uh, excuse me, an escalation in premium uh, for automobile uh, coverage. And uh, an individual who sustained an injury in an automobile accident was provided lifelong treatment for that injury out of this no-fault fund, which was the excess premium set aside 
to fund that care. The system worked very, very, very well for many years. Uh, it's recently been uh, undone legislatively. But if we think about applying a small premium uh, addition to all the health plans that we buy, our automobile plan, uh, insurance, our homeowner's insurance policies, with very small numbers per household uh, contributed annually to a reinsurance fund for catastrophic injury treatment and management. I think we would provide the insurance industry with the additional funding necessary to make possible, financially possible, better treatment access uh, for individuals with catastrophic injuries such as brain injury, spinal cord injury, burns, and am uh, uh, amputation. So uh, those have been my thoughts along the years. Um, uh, I think it's uh, certainly a viable approach. Um, my guess would be that for the cost of a couple of cups of Starbucks coffee uh, on top of these premiums, you would be able to raise enough money uh, to manage the actuarial uh, consequences of, of such a plan. Makes a lot of sense. That's, what, that's what's wrong with it. Right. <laughs> um, let's jump into the lightning round questions. Tell me about a piece of good advice you've received. Read outside your discipline. Excellent advice. Talk to me about something I must do if I came to the community where you live. You must have Dwarves candies, and you must go to the Crystal Palace, which is Buck Owens' uh, Hard Rock Cafe, uh, if you will. All right. Um, what has been your favorite age to be a rehab professional so far? 67. Tell me more. That's how old I am. <laughs> Did you have to get that? <laughs> you had to get that. What big ideas have you changed your mind on in the last few years? I think we've had uh, tremendous changes in uh, our understanding of diversity, our approach to diversity, um, which has been welcomed. How do you thank people who are helpful? I say thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much for being here on the Rehab Cast and presenting one of the plenary sessions this conference. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for your interest. I appreciate it. After exploring the evolution of brain injury treatments with Dr. Mark Ashley, let's now shift our focus on the riveting non-plenary presentation on brain-computer interfaces. Our guides into this frontier are Dr. Tom Oxley and Dr. David Petrino, whose enthusiasm for the future of this field is contagious. Dr. David Petrino shares, I'm so excited and hopeful about the future. We've got brain-computer interfaces, we've got invasive neurostimulation, we've got technologies that are actually restoring function as opposed to uh, improving our ability to sort of just compensate with the impairment that we have. I think the next few years are going to be disruptive in the space of rehab. After a quick break from our sponsors, we will explore this groundbreaking technology further. Rehabcast, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. 
Join us in Dallas for ACRM's 101st Annual Conference. The call for proposals is open for instructional courses, symposia, and research papers and posters. Go to acrm.org call for details. For more information on ACRM, including our groundbreaking Cognitive Rehabilitation Workshop and Manual, visit acrm.org. Welcome back to the RehabCast. We are about to hear Dr. David Petrino and Dr. Tom Oxley introduce themselves and discuss their exciting talk about the developing field of brain-computer interfaces. My name is David Petrino. I'm the Director of Rehabilitation Innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System, and I'm a Professor of Rehabilitation and Human Performance at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. My name is Tom Oxley. I'm a founder um, and CEO of Synchron, a brain-computer interface company and clinical instructor at uh, Mount Sinai in New York City and associate professor at University of Melbourne uh, in Department of Medicine. Thank you both for being here. Um, your talk later today is about your, your brain interface type device. Can you tell us a little bit about how that idea even got started or where it kind of came from? Yeah, so the idea with an implantable brain-computer interface is uh, that a device goes into on top or on top of the brain uh, that's on the inside of the skull it can uh, detect activity in the brain that's associated with the control of movement so motor cortical electrophysiological signals and then it can that signal can be brought out of the body hopefully wirelessly to uh, control external devices that the patient or user would not otherwise be able to control and thereby hopefully restoring some element of independence for the for the patient. That's a BCI definition that has a medical application bent to it. There's also a broader definition of BCI, which is just the connection of brain to outside devices. But the way we're thinking about it is a medical device, that's an implant that serves a need that's actually useful for someone. Yeah. And in my capacity, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do is really centered on this idea that in the United States, it takes about 17 years to take a technology from bench to bedside um, and, and help patients. And uh, my division of rehab innovation was set up at Mount Sinai with the basic understanding that that is a, a number that shouldn't be as big as it is. So when we see technologies that really have the potential to help our patients, um, especially patients that don't have a lot of other options for rehabilitation or uh, augmentative and adaptive technology, um, we really get quite passionate about making sure that we can run rapid, pragmatic clinical trials, we can get these technologies into the homes of patients and, and really uh, really answer the question of whether or not it's, it's doing its job and helping people live a more independent life. And if, you're, if we were to look back at the clock of you two coming together and, and putting this device, how much time have we already clicked along? Well, we actually met in Bijan Pesseran's lab in 2000 and... Yeah, 2011. 11. Yep. What were you doing then? I was... Uh, we were both DARPA-funded researchers. Uh, I was working on a non-human primate project in the brain-computer interface world. And, uh, and and we were working on, uh, you know, various different electrode types that we could implant into the brain uh, to 
record brain activity and use that brain activity to control a prosthetic arm with, with these non-human primates that were very adept at, at upper extremity control. I remember meeting you as part of the DARPA class and, and being very impressed with this idea of trying to record from the vantage point of a blood vessel. Um, and that was something that I think was very novel to the field, this idea that rather than opening the skull and directly penetrating electrodes into the brain, which is what we were doing, which is what the whole field was doing, here comes this guy that is thinking about putting an electrode in through the blood vessel. Um, really novel route. And uh, yeah, that was how we first met. And I think you, you guys were just, Synchron was just at its earliest R&D phases at that point. That was your postdoc, wasn't it? Yes. So you were DARPA funded. I was still, like, I, hadn't, I hadn't started. I, I had just the idea. Okay. And DARPA had, I'd pitched to DARPA at that point and on that trip in that year, I think. But I think I came, I think I first met you in NYU at Bijan Pestron's yeah, lab. That's yeah, that's correct. And so at that point, just the idea had been flagged to DARPA that this might be a project. And then we landed the project and started our work in 2012. And then fast forward, so then there was you know a bunch of work in the animal stage through until 2016. And then Dave and I both ended up in New York City and both ended up at Mount Sinai. And so we kind of reconnected at that point and Dave had built this incredible um, um, abilities lab, like institute basically at uh, in Mount Sinai. And we converged again and then as, as we the, as the Stentrode project came from Australia over to the US, Mount Sinai became a critical partner and Dave and I and Doug Weber wrote a large NIH grant which took years to get mm -hmm. and we finally got it and that formed the basis for the what became the command study which is an early feasibility study which was the, we did our first in human study in Australia and then we did another six um, patients in this command study which we've just enrolled our last subject in and that's now forming the basis for hopefully what will become a much larger pivotal trial of this technology. So this, you know, we're, we feel like we're del delivering uh, brain-computer interfaces into the clinical trials domain, which is what has to happen for it to become, uh, to achieve clinical translation. Yeah, and I think what's novel about your approach, what you've already kind of hinted at, but I'd like to kind of maybe have you unbox a little bit more is accessing or being able to receive signals from actual brain neurons via the vasculature can you i mean obviously it's proprietary you can't tell me too much but kind of what is that and how is that different or talked about that a little bit more i think the way to think about it is there's um subdural arrays, which are ECOG arrays that have traditionally been used in epilepsy, which are a silicon-backed electrode that sits on the surface of the brain. There's never been that device proved for a long-term implant, but for short-term implants, it can be really, you, you've, you can see how much data can be recorded without having to penetrate into the tissue. And then there are the, there's the BrainGate program and now Neuralink, which are doing penetrating arrays into brain parenchyma, where you do get more um, individual neuronal activity. We're not getting individual neuronal activity, we're getting local field potentials. Um, but uh, there are obviously some advantages with sticking inside the blood vessel and not disrupting the brain's architecture. Um, 
And so, yeah, this command study we're doing now is about uh, characterizing how good that signal is. And we've, we've, we've restricted or constrained the first generation system to a very large, robust, strong blood vessel called the superior sagittal sinus. And the trajectory from here is, you know, what happens in minimally invasive medicine is that it gets smaller and smaller and you can go into deeper areas. But right now we're, we, we are excited that we're seeing enough from this particular application in this particular blood vessel in this particular part of the brain that we can generate something, um, a return of function for patients. That's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about like how that collaboration has gone over the last few years into actually making this, I mean, you have a booth here, you're doing a talk, like how, how has this unfolded for you all after re reconnecting at Mount Sinai? Well, I think, you know, we, um, we're both pretty passionate about giving our patients options. Um, when the two of us and, and Doug Weber from Carnegie Mellon were able to secure this NIH grant, that was a really great moment because it allowed us to uh, drive forward with, with this first in, first in human in US uh, trial. Um, yeah, I know, I sometimes just forget. But, but <laughs> um, like any good early feasibility safety trial, um, it, it's been a resounding success. I mean, we, we as, as Tom mentioned, we, the goal was to recruit six patients over five years. We've recruited six patients in two years. The patient population has been incredible. Um, we, we primarily, say for one participant, we primarily focused on patients with ALS. So it has been challenging in that these patients are just very unwell and they have a lot of challenges and I've run, you know, dozens and dozens of clinical trials. And I think that this is um, from a emotional point of view, from a technical point of view, this has been one of the most challenging just because we are dealing with these individuals who have very little function back They're left. They're quite disabled. They're incredible people. Um, they're all very much not in the trial for themselves, but in the trial for the future generations of people um, is, is what they tell us, which, which is really great to see. Um, yeah, it's just been great to work with Tom, uh, great to work with Doug, people who get it, people who understand the urgency behind what we're trying to do. It's not like, oh, well, let's just stay to the timeline that we said on the NIH grant. It's It's been nothing but pushing forward because when we see these patients, we understand the, the level of solution that they need and and very much what they're not getting right now. So um, a lot of motivation in the group, I'd say. I think that's what one of the most compelling pieces of what, what you all are working on is how this could, you know, essentially completely change that architecture for patients with ALS, patients with spinal cord injury or stroke. This this could be that next wave that really unlocks their capabilities in a way that we haven't seen before, and that's really exciting. I'll say one thing that's been interesting from a rehabilitation physician point of view. I started out um, in Australia with a belief that it was going to be rehabilitation physicians who were primarily going to have um, you know, the patients who would benefit from the technology. There was certainly enthusiasm from the rehabilitation physician um, community, but it turned out that they actually didn't. So, and what we've learned, and, and now, you know, engaging the physiatry community, huge excitement and interest, but the patients that we're um, talking about tend to have chronic 
long-term disability from a range of conditions where they've actually gone through rehab and come out the other end. And so it's ironic that the, the BCI or neuroprosthetic technology will provide an avenue for a new therapy that kind of re-engages these patients back into a rehabilitation framework where before there was no framework to do that in. So that I found that really interesting and like we, we so and I think I think as this technology comes into you know you've got the neurointerventionist doing the procedure but once the device is in it's going to be physiatrists and neurologists who care for the patients but it's going to be quite a new field um, new field of medicine. I think that's wonderful. Um, what can uh, someone who's attending your talk later today, what is that going to focus around or what are you going to talk about? And for those who can't even attend the conference this time that might hear this podcast with what you're able to or willing to share, kind of what does that talk go over and what are those next steps? Well, I might give some background on Dave's talk. So Dave's going to give a similar talk to what he gave about uh Five, four months ago in Brussels at what I think is going to be a historic meeting that happened at the BCI Society, which is kind of the you know preeminent. It's still quite small, but it's very. That's where the kind of heart of the BCI academic community is. There was this workshop hosted by the FDA by David McMullen and um, David Petrino gave a, I would say impassioned, uh, fifteen minute presentation that you're going to see again today which uh, gets to the... I'm going to talk about your talk now. Yeah, no, this is funny. <laughs> gets to the... Go on. It gets to the... Well, it's been an interesting journey because if you Google BCI, it's, it's a very evocative term that's thrown around in the, you know, popular... Um, there's dystopian stuff. There's a, it really evokes a reaction from people about what this technology means and why it's here and what it's going to do and... Are we merging with computers? And um, Dave uh, has this incredible passion for his patients, um, especially patients who don't have many options to improve their lives, and has reframed the conversation around what the actual patient need is, because that's been lost a little bit in the whole discussion around this sort of tech race of BCIs or why are we doing it and what's the actual reason for doing this and how do we think it's going to help? So what is the problem? Yeah, so. I mean, I, I would follow on from that and 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 say um, when Tom and I met, and I was working in a in a BCI research lab. Um, one of the first things that I was told as I joined the team was, "I don't care that you're a clinician. You're being hired because of your neuroscience research background, your signal processing background. You know, those are the things that we're hiring you for. This is an engineering problem." We're going to treat it like an engineering problem, and that's how we're going to solve the problem. The patient experience was taken out of the equation. My clinical experience was I was told it was irrelevant. And when you look at the history of BCI research over the last 30 or 40 years, um, there's been some incredible milestones made and incredible work done, but it's all been under the auspices of a science experiment. Um, and so when I actually left that lab, I stopped working in the BCI space because I wasn't so interested in engaging in endless science experiments that weren't involving the patient, weren't centering the patient. 
Um, and really, we're just about, let's get another Nature paper showing that we can move a robotic arm around as opposed to um, sending someone home with something they can use. And, you know, Tom came back on my radar when I saw the results of the first inhuman in Australia clinical trials where the first patient to get him implanted with a stentrode achieved independent home use which was something that no BCI had achieved in 30 years before that. It had always been, yes, you can move the robot around and we, we've seen all of these amazing, and again, these are amazing projects of brain gate with a person with ALS moving a robotic arm and feeding themselves or giving themselves a drink. But that only happens in a clinic. It only happens in a lab with two postdocs behind, you know, furiously typing to make the algorithms work. Um, so when I saw that Synchron was actually crossing that barrier, getting people home and having them use the technology independently, I became interested again. I was like, okay, this is the sort of clinical trial that I want to run because now BCI is getting serious again. So today, you know, the, the talk is more about how do we frame what that looks like? What does what a serious BCI look like for someone with a severe disability? Is it the same as what we've we've seen in the media all this time of robotic arms and robotic legs moving around or is it something different and that's what we'll be talking about today i think that's incredibly interesting um and is exciting even in the fact that you've been able to enroll patients and get patients enrolled so quickly what do you see are the the next steps unfolding or where where do you see this path ahead for both of you in this project or BCI research in general? So that, that's, the, so, you know, f so we're finishing up the command study. We're preparing um, the device to um, be a neck. We, we've made some major improvements with the system um, with a focus on making sure that it can support independent home use. So, you know, long battery life and um, um, independent activation and works immediately out of the box and they're, they're the things that we are starting to really focus on now as those that are critical needs for the patient which you're yeah. um, writing about currently and then yeah on, on our end what we're very interested in is is this this concept of um, creating outcome measures that actually can can measure success of a technology like this what uh, has become really evident to me as as our team has delved into the literature and and started working on command has been you know all of the outcome measures that we have for measuring disability right now really kind of go like this it's can you walk the dog and the lowest level of that scale is no i can't walk the dog and then the next step up is I have extreme difficulty walking my dog. There's absolutely nothing in terms of outcome measures that can detect smaller changes in independence for someone with severe disability. So someone with, if you think about end stage ALS, someone who doesn't really have a whole lot of eye movement left, no independent limb movement, maybe a few independent muscle, you know, expressions on their face, and that's about it. Um, trying to actually measure what is meaningful in terms of change for for these individuals, uh, and and of course going beyond quality of life because there's always this assumption that these folks have terrible quality of life, but many of these folks 
who have lived with severe disability for a long time actually have quite good quality of life, you know, and, and there's been many studies to this effect in spinal cord injury and ALS showing that there's an initial drop off in quality of life, but then it kind of comes back up as, as you adjust to your new situation and, and plateaus. Um, so we don't think that quality of life is necessarily the most valid measure. And, and what we want to start to do is, is build out a set of tools that allow us to understand, okay, can you call your nurse when you need to call your nurse? Can you, you know, let someone know that something's going wrong? Can you, you know, control your environment and turn lights on, turn lights off, control the entertainment you want to watch without bothering anybody else? These are the things that we're not measuring right now. We don't have scales and instruments to measure. And, um, and I think it's really important that with this new generation of technologies entering the space, we, we need them as rehab professionals. Absolutely. And like looking back on, I mean, some of the scales that we even currently use, a lot of them have gone through this trend where you get a, a macro scale and then we realize that this one end of the spectrum is completely inefficient. And then a new scale gets developed just to look at that individual section. And this is, I think, the next layer of that. And it's really interesting to me to even think that we're zooming in this much because we now have tools to amplify that zone that previously has been thought of as extreme limited function. And now we're opening up that box of what we can do even inside that potentially narrow window of space. So thank you both for everything you've been doing and what you continue to do. So lightning round questions as it kind of hints at the goal is to get quick answers and kind of spur on a little bit of conversation. Um, you can choose to both answer this or jump back and forth completely up to both of you. Um, so first question or prompt, tell me a piece of good advice you've received. Be useful. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. All right. Those are both excellent. Talk to me about something I must do if I came to the community where you, you live. So Mount Sinai, New York region. What's something someone was coming to that part of the world? I have so much pizza for you to eat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> eat a lot of pizza, but very specific pizza, not the $1 type. Visit the Human Origins exhibition at the Natural History Museum. Oh man, mine is so shallow now. <laughs> <laughs> it's mind blowing. So where where is the pizza place you would say is the pizza place if I had to pick? Well, I've I got a favorite in my neighborhood that's called Lindustry. It's uh, pretty special. Everyone in New York says like their local is I the know. best one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the closest one. It's the one that you have the most access to, so it's obviously the best. Yeah. All my, right. My wife says little Frankie's. Okay. Okay. How do you thank people who are helpful? Oh my goodness. I mean, personally speaking, I am, I, I try and do them favors back. That's, that's my pathology is I can't take a favor. I need to give a favor back always or cook them dinner. (laughs) Sometimes you have to uh, give people the perspective on why that really mattered. And that can be really powerful. I like both of those answers. What has been your favorite age to be a rehab professional so far? Right now. Right now. 
I'm so excited and hopeful about the future. We've got brain-computer interfaces. We've got invasive neurostimulation. We've got technologies that are actually restoring function as opposed to uh, improving our ability to sort of just compensate with the impairment that we have. I think the next few years are going to be disruptive in the space of rehab. Or in 20 years from now, when maybe now is the, is the most exciting time because they're right on the cusp, but imagine when they're in clinical work and there's a whole range of options you can do and, you know, that's going to be pretty cool. Definitely. When it hopefully becomes more standard of care. Yeah. That'd be really exciting. Uh, what big ideas have you changed your mind on in the last few years? I'm always changing my mind. This is a, this is a real problem. I mean, I, I changed my mind on brain-computer interface being a worthy place to do research um, because of, uh, you know, Synchron crossing the threshold for um, uh, uh, independent home use. Um, I've also changed my mind about invasive neurostimulation because we've suddenly had a whole bunch of studies starting to show promise as opposed to before where there were lots of neurostimulation studies that weren't showing a whole lot of promise. So um, I'm, I'm definitely revamping my interest in these worlds. Maybe the one thing that comes to mind, you kind of mentioned it earlier, is I initially set out on this journey with BCI thinking that it would be prosthetic limbs or robotic limbs that are reanimated and now realizing that these you know we all take these incredibly powerful computers in our pockets for granted and they can do so much and so the the shift of bci to control widely available technologies that we take for granted is the big shift i think why bci is going to be land and have impact immediately yeah and there's i messed around with it a little bit but there's there's been the apps that seem like they're almost there like the if this then that type apps where you can control a lot just through programming and things to do all this but this is taking it to a whole nother extreme level that i think is incredibly exciting if this and that's interesting it's we're looking at um, anyway, it's like it's like choose your own adventure mm-hmm. type pathways where limited with li- where you have limited options, but you can start to the AI knows roughly where you want to go, and you make a low number of selections, and it keeps opening up. You're like, oh yeah, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. That's how AI, I think, is going to make this technology really powerful for limited use, limited users, limited potential users. Thank you so much for being on this episode of the Rehab Cast, and I look forward to attending your lecture later today. Um, any other closing remarks or questions? No, thank you for having uh, us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This has been great. Leaving behind the technology frontier and brain-computer interfaces, we pivot to a topic that's deeply interwoven with the very essence of rehabilitation, the human experience. Joining us now is plenary speaker, Dr. Lisa Van Hoos who will illuminate the intricate challenges surrounding DEI fatigue and rehabilitation. Dr. Lisa Van Hoos insightfully remarks, We have to have better questions. And I think the scientists of old, the philosophers of old, they understood that. With this, let's warmly welcome her as she introduces herself. Welcome, everyone, and I'm Dr. Lisa Van Hoos, and I'm very excited to share time and space with you. 
I am a professor and program director in the physical therapy department at the University of Louisiana Monroe. I am also the founder and CEO of the Ujima Center and its affiliated businesses. And so I'm super excited to be at ACRM. I'm very excited to talk on the topic of DEI fatigue. Absolutely. Um, there's one particular slide in your talk that hopefully the people who are listening to this will really latch on to as much as I did. When you have the, the Venn diagram pictures that you, you come back to multiple times, but it is such a great visual. Um, and even, uh, it's gonna be hard to talk about, but I wonder if you could kind of describe what that diagram is and how there's, there's those different overlapping layers of what the vulnerability pieces are for patients and rehab professionals and what that looks like. Um, give some color to that if you Oh don't my mind. goodness. So y'all, you're going to have to see these Venn diagrams. So we actually leveraged some research that looked at medical vulnerability. Um, and so in this particular article, and so you got to come listen to the lecture, but surprising, spoiler alert, it comes from Florida. So for those of you that are, you know, out here, we're all kind of hating on Florida right now. But Florida Department of Health is doing some really interesting work. And so I also find that to be kind of ironic, right? So Florida and Texas are doing a lot of DEI and justice work right now, trying to figure out their health disparities because it is health disparities that is driving up um, their health costs. But the Florida Department of Health commissioned um, some researchers to do some work for them. And what they found in the state of Florida is that there are three causes of vulnerability. And so the first is community health care access. So that's one circle in this diagram. The second is individual medical needs, so that's the other circle. And then the third is health system um, capabilities. And so what they talked about was that when these three things converge, that really gives the best approximation of someone's vulnerability as it relates to their medical vulnerability. And so in this lecture, we tie that back into how that each of these areas actually represents a component of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then the nice thing about what they did in this particular study was they said, wait a minute, if this is the vulnerability that people have when they engage with our medical system, and then we layer on top of that what's known as your social vulnerability, um, and those of you who have been following the CDC's work, so there actually is what's known as a social vulnerability index that can kind of predict um, what the resilience of a community might be in times of disaster, um, human or either um, human-made or natural. but. They started talking about, okay, if we're really going to provide individual health care, we can't just talk about what's going to happen within the walls of our health care system um, within the state of Florida, but we also have to think about the social context that people are living in. And so I just thought that was fascinating that Florida is having that conversation in light of everything else that Florida is doing, that we're understanding that really Healthcare is about how do you decrease someone's vulnerability and all the different dimensions of vulnerability. I, yeah, I, that echoed with me so much when I, I saw those slides. So thanks for pulling those pieces together to help uh, picture, uh, put a picture to kind of that concept. Um, really excellently done. Um, 
I also kind of liked, you have a quote in there that I'm curious um, if you can share where it came from or if it was your own invention, um, where disability is kind of that mismatch between our own abilities and our environmental demands. And that paired with that diagram really helps highlight the struggle that we all face as healthcare providers and rehab professionals to make that bridge better for our patients to re-engage with their environment and their communities and their workplace. So that particular quote was my attempt to paraphrase um, some work that was done by McKenzie et al. And so we're going to talk a little bit about their work in this topic. But really what those authors were trying to get people to see is that disability, we often discuss it from a binary state, right? The disabled and the non-disabled. And what they were saying was that no. If we can look at disability from this lens of vulnerability, in essence, we all have a certain level of vulnerability equals disability. And could we get to the place of where we talk about it on a spectrum so that we normalize the fact that we all need help somewhere um, in this human condition and it's just a matter of who is more likely to get help? And then once we're able to say, I too have a vulnerability or a disability, I too need help. I too may have privilege that allows me to get my mismatch addressed easier, then we may be more likely to start talking about solutions. Where in this particular paper, what they were talking about is that since we've made it binary, we've almost made it like an individual failure, right? That if you can't figure out how to get the environment to do what you need, there's something wrong with you versus hey, how do we create environments that recognize we all have some vulnerability, some disability? I like that a lot. And I'm, I also, um, being someone that's read several of Renee Brown's books and all sorts of things, I feel like this is such a resonance with all the stuff that she's doing as well. And it really speaks to the more the human condition as opposed to the patient and provider or any other way you look at it in the healthcare system. This is just a good way to take care of people. I love it. And I was like, Renee Brown! Yuck, you made me super excited. And I mean, like, because she just does this beautiful job of saying, can we just accept the fact that we all, right, we all have stuff. Um, and I'm like, could we just get back to basic anatomy? That's my thing. I'm like, everybody's got asymmetry. No one's face is really equal. We've just come to accept a certain amount of asymmetry as normal. But there is no thing as normal. And there's no thing as one size fits all. And I'm like, if we could just get past that fallacy, it would just make it so much easier to get to the work that we need to do, which is person-centered care. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, uh, moving, I, I want to make sure we kind of highlight all the different aspects of your talk. Um, and as you kind of wrap up some of the areas we've already discussed, you start to move into the space of uh, representation and how that is an important part of this conversation as well. And um, again, with it, without feeling like you need to divulge everything you're going to be talking about specifically, but can you kind of help thread that space of moving from uh, the discussion about vulnerability into the space of how we can use that some of those models to start to 
underline and move towards better representation. Yes, yes. So, oh, he just gave me a challenge, y'all. So I got to figure out how to do this and not tell you everything. So one of the things we're going to talk about is how that if diversity is the count, representation is really about understanding the complexity of the count, right? Because none of us walk into a room as a single of anything. So I am here today having a conversation with you. I identify as a black woman, but my ethnicity is African-American. Um, I also now am someone of higher means, but I have a history of coming from a place of lower means, right? So if you were just to say, there's Lisa, the black, right? You would still need a gender in our society right now. Or you might even just have to say the black person. And what does that mean, right? Because now we're defining person is even fluid in our society. So diversity is that simplistic count. It's really easy. But representation really looks at the intersectionality of a person. Then we start having this conversation in this, um, in this session about equity and Sankofa. Um, and so if equity is this conversation about making sure that you have what you need, Sankofa challenges you to also say, why does that person need that? Because um, you'll hear people now say, well, why do we have to keep talking about the past? Because the past is what's going to help us keep from repeating it in the future. And so Sankofa is an African principle that says that it is actually okay to reach back into the past. Then we're going to talk about inclusion and how that inclusion, if it is this concept of someone feeling like they belong, then that means that all parties have to have a conversation about trustworthiness, right? Because part of me feeling like I belong in that area and me being able to take down my mask is me feeling like, okay, I can trust the people that are in the room. So we're going to talk about how practitioners and even just being a human, you have to be responsible for your trustworthiness. So it's going to be a really great conversation. I like that a lot. And uh, I'm frantically trying to pull up a quote that I have in all of my emails that I think kind of represents yeah. this, that really resonates with me. Um, it's an Albert Einstein quote. Big, big fan of him, a uh, serious scientist, but also a bit of a goofball, which I think relates to me. Um, the quote is, learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. The important thing is not to stop questioning. I love it. I love um, it. And I think this kind of pulls in towards the end of your talk when you, you address the, like, we need to keep asking questions in this space. It's not a we fixed it situation. It's a plan, do, study, act cycle. It's a continuation of what's come, what we're doing, and where we're going. But it, it's never, it should ideally never be a solid state. It should be the thing that we keep moving forward into. Oh, I was like, the doors of the church are now open. Because um, part of my identifiers is that, so I am a Christian, and so what Bill just said just spoke to me. It, Oh my goodness, Bill. I'm sorry. I had a few goosebumps, y'all. I apologize. Because he is so spot on. And I think that in this climate right now where people are like, well, you know, these conversations about 
diversity and affirmative action and equity, you know, we're just asking, you know, to give handouts of positions and opportunities to people. And it's not that at all. It's the fact that we understand that you can ask better questions when there are more perspectives in the room, right? Part of what I like about Einstein's story that a lot of people did not did not know was he actually was a champion of DEI. Um, and there were several quotes and hidden writings from him about how that inequities were actually slowing down the science. So, and I love that perspective of him. I hate the fact of that he was during a time where people didn't want to have those conversations. But if you love the science, if you love the research, you understand that we need to understand as many conditions as possible so that we can truly say we tested as many hypotheses as possible. Right. If the, if the purpose of the science is to get to a better truth, yes. the only way you get there is looking at it from all the different angles you possibly can. Love it. And uh, I think that's what we're kind of called for as rehab professionals is to look at the issues and the vulnerabilities in the space that people with all sorts of different impairments, including ourselves, like that's the only way we get better is to continually work through that process. Let's jump into the lightning round questions. Oh, good. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Tell me about a piece of good advice you've received. Oh, a piece of good advice I received. I would say someone told me to stop apologizing. Um, I am someone who grew up in the South. I'm also a black woman. And because of that intersectionality, I have a habit of apologizing. Even when I'm speaking my truth, I will apologize for my own truth. And the person was like, why? Why are you apologizing? Stop apologizing. Excellent answer. Um, Tell me about something I must do if I came to the community where you live. If you come to my community, you have to sit down. You have to sit down, you have to be present, and you have to eat. (laughs) What what would be on that plate? What would be Um, the thing? So it is the South, so there most likely is going to be something, some type of bean. Um, There's going to be something green, a lettuce, a cabbage, a collard green, a turnip green. Um, There's probably going to be some part of the bird, right, a chicken of something. Um, And then there will be a dessert. I think, and people often, you know, we rag on the Southern diet, but the Southern diet really is an expression of love. And so when you live in communities that are disadvantaged, food is sometimes the one thing that someone can give you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So have a seat, sit down, be present, eat. Now, y'all, you don't have to eat all of it. We're here for it to go plate. We always got aluminum foil, but just be present. Got it. You've kind of referenced this, but how do you thank people who are helpful? I ask people what they want. So, yeah. Um, And I will say that I've only learned that in the last decade of life because, you know, we were all taught the golden rule, do unto others as you want done unto you. But in this last decade of my life, it really is this conversation of, of how do you like to be appreciated? Because I want to give you what you need, right? That's the equity conversation. So I'm getting better at saying, how can I, how can I celebrate you? Makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
What big ideas have you changed your mind on in the last few years? Ooh, the Ujima Center. Um, so I originally created the Ujima Center um, in partnership with other community members, and we thought that it was going to be this one-stop shop and we were going to do everything. And we realized, number one, that was unrealistic, right? Um, it is very difficult to get funding for social programs. The second thing we realized was that it actually was encroaching on the work of others, right? Um, we have so many nonprofits in our community or people that have, you know, trying to contribute. Everybody's trying to do their part to build up um, our very disadvantaged community. And so this mindset that we we're going to come in and colonize and, right, we're like, we're here. That, we had to step back and go, okay, that is against the very spirit of Ujima, which is collective work and responsibility. So now we are pivoting and realizing that we're going to work more as a coordinating organization. Now, when there are services that need to, there, there's a need to be met and potentially to be met in a much more cost-efficient manner. So like one of the things we do at the Ujima Center is we provide childcare um, either at no cost or as a discounted cost. Um, we're we're going to continue to do those things because we feel like that contributes to a family's overall health and wellness. But if there are times in which we can partner with another organization, lift up another organization, we're going to stop competing. So we had to spank ourselves on the hand for our own colonizing nature. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, last, last lightning round question. What has been your favorite period of time to be a rehab professional so far? This is going to sound cheesy. I'm going to say actually now. My story is, is I, um, because of some changes in my family dynamic, I had my first child in the 10th grade, I had a second child in the 12th grade, right? So I'm graduating with, from high school with two children. I'm your, you know, teenage mom and all the stereotypes that came with it. And fast forward, I'm now 50 um, and I'm a physio and I did not choose physio. Physio chose me. Um, I actually was asked to consider the profession as part of a workforce diversification effort. But physio has changed my life. Um, and I say now because now I walk these hallways and people who look like me, people who don't look like me, even today somebody stopped me and was like, I want you to know that I'm doing this work and I'm listening to your lectures or somebody stopped me and was like, I just needed to know that someone else understands what it is like to be black in the physical medicine and rehab um, space. So now's a really good time. Like, cause once you get to this place where you got one foot in the dirt, you, you want to know that your life meant something. And yes, I have my family and my friends, but I just always felt like I was called into existence. Um, to leave the world a little better place. And I feel like I could say I did that. Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks for being here on this episode of the Rehab Cast. Thanks for being of our one of our outstanding plenary speakers. We're really thankful that you're here. Thank you. Bringing this episode to a close, we've navigated through a rich landscape of rehabilitation medicine. We started with the vital role of representation and disability research with Dr. Forber Pratt, transitioned to the evolving treatment of patients with brain injuries with Dr. Ashley, 
explore the frontier of brain-computer interfaces with Dr. Petrino and Dr. Oxley, and culminated with Dr. Van Hoos's compelling discussion on DEI fatigue. Consider joining us in our shared effort to make rehabilitation more inclusive, innovative, and impactful. We appreciate you joining us today on the ACRM RehabCast. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening right now. It really does help spread the word about this wonderful field of rehabilitation. Special thanks to Jenny Almond, who produced this episode. RehabCast music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And now, the mandated promotional material read by my daughter. Uh, yeah, I guess you could come to this rehab meeting thing in Dallas in 2024 if you want. The ACRM 2024 conference goes from October 31st to November 3rd. You can still sign up, but you might want to hurry. And if you can't make it, who cares? Just stalk them online. Have a hashtag ACRM 2024 on social media. Have fun with that. The ACRM Rehab Cast is hosted by Dr. Bill Niehaus. Follow me on social media at, at nhousemd. That's N-H-A-U-S-M-D. <laughs> You're so good. Thank you.